This is Morning Air. This is about educating a people that for 40 years haven't been given the full truth. It's time now to speak the truth. When you do things to the best of your ability, keeping Jesus number one and doing everything you possibly can for His glory, that's a winner. You are called to make the light of Christ shine brightly in the world. Bringing the light of Christ to start your day. This is Morning Air with John Morales on Relevant Radio. Four minutes after the hour, it's Friday, October 29th. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn Leverance. Thanks so much for joining us here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Good to be with you on this last Friday of October. Hard to believe the month has flown by. We have a lot to talk about. On Fridays, we always remember the passion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Friday is also the traditional day dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Our number, if you want to be part of the show, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Now, here in the month of November, which is coming up just a few days away, away after this weekend. Uh, This is the month that we remember the holy souls in purgatory, our family and friends who have passed from this earthly life. They need your prayers, and we want to pray for them with you. We want to invite you to join us here at Relevant Radio, November 2nd through the 10th, as we pray a special novena for your departed loved ones during daily Mass at noon Central, the Chapel of Divine Mercy with Drew Mariani at 3 Central, and the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky at 7 p.m. Central. All you have to do is go to relevantradio.com souls to share all the names of all of your departed loved ones who need your prayers. We start uh, every hour and every morning giving thanks to our Lord for the many blessings that we receive every day, always praying through the intercession of the Mother of God, our Blessed Mother Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, patroness of life and of relevant radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, in this year of St. Joseph, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of relevant radio, pray for us. And we always invoke the Holy Spirit every day when we pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. As we do every morning, our power scripture from the playbook of life is from James 1.12. The apostle St. James writes, Blessed is the man who endures trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. As Catholic Christians, we need to understand the redemptive value of trials and suffering. From my sports reporting days, I remember the great Notre Dame head football coach, Lou Holtz, who once said, I've never known anybody to achieve anything without overcoming adversity. Every athlete has overcome many obstacles and every saint, and we're all called to be saints. Every one of them has overcome many trials and tribulations. The Lord gives us trials to test our faith. He will always give us the grace to bear our sufferings 
All we have to do is ask him. We always pray with great confidence, Jesus, I trust in you. Now, there's been a story uh, circulating in the news uh, about the presence of dads, of fathers that make a difference. A school in Louisiana had 23 students arrested for fighting uh, in just a one month. But that all changed uh, when uh, some fathers decided to step up to the plate, as CBS Evening News reported. When the SOS went up at a troubled school, who answered the call? A bunch of DADs. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman on the road. Not many good news stories begin in such a bad news way. It happened last month here at Southwood High School in Shreveport, Louisiana. Plagued with violence. Over the course of three days, another fight 23 students arrested for fighting. Massive police response. But strangely, there hasn't been another incident since. Perhaps in part because of this most unusual crisis intervention team. With dads, we decided the best people who can take care of our kids are who? For us. So Michael Lafitte started Dads on Duty. We're out doing what we do for our babies. A group of about 40 Southwood dads who now hang out at the school in shifts. Let's go. I immediately felt a form of safety. We stopped fighting, people started going to class. How could that be? You ever heard of a look? A look? Dads have the power to do that? Yes. <laughs> Not many people know it, but yes. And now joining us for much more perspective is Dr. John Cutterback to, to, to talk about dads on duty and the impact of fatherly presence at a troubled high school. Uh, Dr. Cutterback is a professor of philosophy at Christendom College. He's also a husband and a father, a student of great thinkers and a man on a search. Good morning, Dr. Cutterback. Welcome back to Morning Air. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Great to be with you. Uh, first of all, uh, I'd love to hear your impressions um, when you got a chance to see uh, this story that we just shared. Yeah, it, it, it really is a remarkable one, but not, not expected. And uh, yeah, I, I think the, the first thing that jumped out at me is, wow, that, that these men realized this and that they stepped up and they, not surprisingly, made a difference. I mean, it, it's the outcome is it's so exciting, but not that surprising because it's 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 so right, it's so fitting. Absolutely, and uh, it, and it's interesting. Uh, the the uh, the story, the entire story, actually goes on to show some of the reaction uh, from the kids uh, of uh, the uh, unique strengths that that dads uh, can possess. Uh, I, I thought that was also very interesting that these kids recognize that that fathers. Uh, you know, have certain innate qualities uh, that can make a difference in a trouble situation like that uh, high school. Yep, yep. It, I mean, they're just kind of from, you know, from the mouths of babes, something that is that's there in nature to be seen. Frankly, something that St. Thomas Aquinas talked about when he talked about the, the naturalness of marriage and how a man and a woman are both essential in parenting and how God has beautifully designed that for complementary roles. In that, you know, in, in in her own way, that young lady, in referring to the to the look of a father, is 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 noticing something about the the unique and beautiful and really irreplaceable role that a father has in in guiding children. Uh, 
to the good life. Absolutely. Uh, do you think that the, in this day and age, um, many of those qualities uh, that uh, dads, that fathers have traditionally uh, possessed have been really downplayed, uh, especially in, in the movies and sitcoms in our general culture? Absolutely. And, of course, to the serious detriment of, of all involved, because you know, there's so many beautiful aspects of God's plan. And one of them is that you know, when men step up to take their place, especially, I mean, my mind always goes, first of all, to the household, right? I mean, it's you know, what these dads did in that school is really pointing to what dads, first of all, need to be doing in the home. And when men step up and recognize what their role, what their special place is there, of course, that's key for the children, and it transforms life in the home. But then also an oft-missed thing is it transforms the men. It's actually for their good, too. By God's great design, that's how they are going to most discover themselves. So when you think of the general kind of unhappiness out there, it's funny, when we think of the lack of fatherhood, we often think of the negative consequences in those that are fathered and are not getting that fathering. And we don't think necessarily of the other side of that, of those that should be doing the fathering, as it were, are missing a key aspect of God's gift to them. Dr. Cudbeck, um, I couldn't help but, but think to myself, you know, this is a story that aired on the CBS uh, Evening News. Uh, this is mainstream media. And even in the mainstream media, a story like this can, can grab people's attention. And they obviously thought it was important enough to, to run it uh, on the Evening News. Uh, they see that, uh, that dads can make a difference. And uh, we, we saw some uh, very unique uh, strengths of fathers that were highlighted in this story. Yeah, we, 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 we absolutely did. And again, one, one of the things that's particularly inspiring there is just that they noticed, right, they, these men noticed that they were needed, that they were able to do something that other people aren't able to do, that they also, the beautiful aspect of them, of them working together, they're not ex- they weren't exactly sure what to do, but they, but something called them you know, for the for the good of these young people. We need to step up. So, I, I, mean, I dare say, our sincere prayer might be: m- m- may this spread, and then may it take root in the, in the more root way. Again, I'm really glad those dads went into the school, and the, and, and their presence is needed there. But you know, the more, more primordial, right? The first place for that is: are we recognizing the place in the home and how dads need to be stepping up as it were where are their hearts you know I, I i just as i was thinking about this my mind went to the first chapter of the gospel of saint luke when the angel is saying to zechariah about john the baptist uh what john the Baptist's role is going to be and you know there's that remarkable line he will turn many of the sons of israel to the lord their god and he will go before them in the spirit of the power of elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. It's, just, it's, it's such a remarkable line. Wow. To turn it, the it really hearts is. of the father to the children. Here, here is the mission of John the Baptist preparing us 
for the Messiah, to prepare for the Messiah, to prepare for the grace of Christ, we need to have the hearts of fathers turned to their children. It's like, let your mind run wild of the richness of what that means. And, and certainly today, in a unique way, right? This, this, is, this is an instance of that. But you know, we, we gotta, we, and let's be grateful for every little thing that, that there is there. But we we got to expand that. We need to see where are men's hearts. And, and, and you know, John, one way I would put it is, men are being gypped. Men are being stripped of what they should be doing, of what they're called to do, of something so central to who they are, by their focus always being pulled to less important things. And particularly, what form does that take? Their jobs, their professions, which are, of course, very important, which are a key way that they are called to serve. But it's not the main place that their hearts should be. Their hearts need to be turned to the prior things, especially, of course, now here, talking about in the primary instance, to their wives and to their children in the household. And so what are they concentrating their energy on? What are they applying their mind and their deliberation to? Fatherhood is about taking your energy and applying it to forming the good life in people. This is an extremely beautiful, central, masculine thing. This is what fathers are called to do. Utterly unique way, they're crafters. They're crafters of the good life in the home, in the young, and in others. And it, it's, it's one of the central things that their life should be about, and it ends up being peripheral. Our guest, Dr. John Cutterback, a professor of philosophy at Christendom College, a husband and a father. We're talking about dads on duty, the impact of fatherly presence at a troubled high school. You know, uh, Dr. Cutterback, one of the things that, that kind of uh, struck me was the fact that and you, can't, you can't see it, uh, you can't hear it here, obviously, in the clip that we played, but you can see it in the original uh, video um, on CBS News, is these dads, these guys were big guys. I mean, they they look like football players, somewhat intimidating, you know. So, again, yep, there's something yep. to be said just even for the presence of dads to straighten out some of these young guys that were misbehaving and getting into all those fights. It's, it's, it's true. You know, it, it's almost God has a, a, a wonderful, beautiful, I'm going to say here, a sense of humor. I mean, you know, not, not all men are big men, but all men are endowed by nature in such a way as to be ready and able, sure, in varying degrees, to step into this key role of what I like to call taking first responsibility in the household. And, and you know that even the, the bodily endowment of a man is, is part of the gift. It's part of a natural signage of where God is speaking to us, because obviously the bodily endowment of women points in a very special way to their motherhood. And the same, and it's not just bodily, it's the bodily, the psychological, the intellectual endowments of women point to a special fittedness, a special calling to their motherhood. And we need to be thinking more about how the bodily 
the psychological, the intellectual endowments of men are calling them, are preparing them, are fitting them for fatherhood. St. Thomas refers to this directly, where he, he, he says that a man needs to be present as having a very special role in disciplining. Now, this is, this is a big topic, John, we don't, and we're not, you know, we don't need, we're not going to be able to turn it all around before our eyes at the moment. And I just want to immediately say, one could misinterpret that as St. Thomas saying, okay, so they're big, so you know, they need to start hitting people. This is not the point. Disciplining is a very rich word in English, rooted in the Latin, of that basically means teaching, guiding them, directing them. But there is that you know, law has a directive power, and then sometimes there needs to be a kind of backup to it for the good of all involved, a kind of a backup of a kind of strength, and that is part of the endowment there of a kind of strength that needs to be ready on hand if, for the good of all, there needs to be some enforcement, right? So if we can leave an abstraction, the issue of, well, exactly how, what form does disciplining take? Disciplining is fundamentally about giving direction, and that can include in it giving direction with some enforcement behind it. And this is an art. It's a very delicate art, and it's an art that men need to be thinking and praying about together constantly. And it's something that is done out of love. If you really love your son, you're going to discipline him, uh, not because you want to be hard on him, but because you love him and you want him to, to be exactly. properly formed and you want him to develop into a, a fine young man. Exactly. And, and again, there's, there's so many angles of this. And the thing I just really, really want to emphasize is, again, where are our hearts as men? Which, on what are we concentrating? What are we thinking about? You know, we're, let's go back to the philosophy of it. We humans, we're always rational animals. God has given us the astounding, incomparable gift of reason to be able to search for and uncover the truth and how to go about living our life in a rational way. There's so many different beautiful aspects of fatherhood, how it fits with motherhood, how it is a fulfillment of marriage, and how it is for the good of the children, how it is a beautiful expression of the love in our hearts for all involved, how to do it, how to do it. There's no manual that's ever going to give the full answer to that, but the way we can make sure that we're at least going in the right direction is that this is where our hearts are, and that we're consistently talking and deliberating, and that men are coming together, comparing notes, helping one another, supporting one another, encouraging one another, holding one another accountable. How are we doing in putting appropriately first our, our relationship with our wife? Because, by the way, that's always at the heart of parenting, is to prioritize your spouse. And then, how am I appropriately prioritizing presence to my children every day? 
Dr. Kudbeck, uh, final thoughts. Uh, looking back at this this story, uh, uh, at the end of the day, you know, the teachers and the faculty, uh, they couldn't discipline uh, these 23 students that were arrested for fighting uh, in, in, in just one month. Uh, but these dads were able to. Uh, a final thought on, on the impact of these fathers on, the, on those kids. I, I just say it's part of the gift of God. Praise the Lord. Let's be, let's be grateful for little things and for big things. These men have patterned for all the rest of us, even if just a small way, of seeing something that was theirs to do and stepping up and doing it. And actually one of the beautiful things about that little clip is how much clearly they have enjoyed in that deeper way recognizing this was something that was theirs to do. It's for the good of all. That's the way it always is in God's plan. Fatherhood is a gift to absolutely all of us. May we men, especially in the spirit of those men, step up and receive that gift of our fatherhood and thereby share that gift with everybody else. Dr. Cudbeck, I really appreciate uh, your perspective and the reminder that fatherhood really is a gift. Thanks so much uh, for being with us. Absolutely. My pleasure, John. Dr. John Cudbeck, professor of philosophy at Christendom College. Uh, we need to take a, a short break. When Morning Air continues, Emily Albrecht, a coach with Equal Rights Institute, will join us to talk about uh, a new program that that organization uh, has developed uh, to uh, defend and protect human life. Stay with us. There's a lot more conversation coming up here on Morning Air as the show continues. Conversation. Call us now, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. You're listening to Morning Air with John Morales on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. 28 minutes after the hour. Welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales. Thanks so much for joining us. Our number, if you want to be part of the show, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Now, uh, as you know, we're just wrapping up Respect Life Month here in the month of October that is coming to a close. And as we do, the Equal Rights Institute is rolling out uh, a new, very uh, uplifting and interesting program. And now joining us is Emily who has a passion for reaching the youth uh, of the pro-life movement to talk about this new program. Emily is a speaker, writer, and coach with the Equal Rights Institute. She's uh, the former co-president of Olds for Life at St. Olaf College, where she has worked to transform campus culture using Equal Rights Institute's apologetics to foster respectful and productive dialogues about abortion and promote a culture of life. Good morning, Emily. Welcome back to Morning Air. Thanks so much uh, for being with us this morning. Good morning, John. It is always a joy to chat with you. Emily, uh, for, first of all, for folks that aren't really familiar uh, with your organization, uh, the, the Equal Rights Institute, tell us a little bit about uh, your group and, and, and the work that you're doing with them. Sure. So Equal Rights Institute is a national pro-life apologetics organization that essentially means that we specialize in training pro-life advocates 
how to have more productive dialogues about abortion. We like to say that we train pro-life people to think clearly, reason honestly, and argue persuasively. So that means understanding the smartest pro-choice arguments that are out there and how to refute those effectively, but more importantly, how to just engage in a productive dialogue with someone that has a different view from you, how to really get their walls down so that they can hear the arguments that you're making and actually be affected by them. So we travel the country as well as have a lot of online content that's just specialized in helping pro-life people to really make a difference in their local communities, talking to their friends, their families, their churches about why being pro-life is important to them. Why, uh, Emily, do you think it's important uh, for uh, the average uh, young person to to be um, armed with the information and be able to answer just basic questions that that are undoubtedly going to come up from time to time about the issue of life, about uh, abortion? Quite frankly, I'm so passionate about teaching people because I myself wasn't prepared. I grew up Catholic and I went to a Catholic school and got a wonderful education. But when I went off to college, I found myself dropped into this environment that was extremely hostile to the pro-life position, to the Christian position even, even though I went to a Christian college. And so I found myself really overwhelmed and scared to tell people that I was pro-life, scared to even stand up for my beliefs in any way and admit to having those beliefs. And until I found the tools that Equal Rights Institute offers, I quite frankly stumbled upon them after my freshman year of college and realized that that was the key that I was missing to really be able to engage with the students and to not feel afraid anymore, to be able to tell people why I believe what I believe and actually help convince people to come over to the pro-life side. And I ended up growing up a pro-life group at my college and the rest is history. Now I work full time in the pro-life movement and I wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for someone training me in how to be strong in my own faith. What was the the most important thing that you learned when you discovered uh, the Equal Rights uh, Institute tools and you realized, hey, there's really answers to some of these uh, basic objections? Oh, man, I think the most important thing I learned is just that you can have a productive conversation with someone that has a very different view from you if you learn and really ingrain some basic dialogue tools. Things like finding common ground with pro-choice people and asking effective clarification questions. I think most people have in their minds that pro-choice people, or if you're talking about any issue, maybe it's not abortion, it's just someone on the opposite side from you, they're going to be really closed off to hearing what you have to say. And that's usually true at the beginning of a conversation. And that can just make it feel intimidating to start one. But if you get some practice using basic dialogue skills that we all know about, We just often forget to use them. And I think the biggest thing that Equal Rights Institute taught me was how to use those tools effectively so that I could get past that first awkward 30 seconds of a conversation where maybe a pro-choice student on my campus is pretty upset that there's a pro-life group there. They feel personally threatened by it in some way, and they're not thrilled that I want to talk to them about abortion. But if I use some of those tools in the first section of my conversation, I can build a lot of rapport with them, and I can get a place where they are open to hearing those pro-life arguments that I've also learned from ERI. But if you don't take that time to establish that rapport and bring their walls down, then you're not going to be able to make an impact. So really, that's the most important step. The arguments matter less 
the relationship you build with that person matters far more. And I imagine that listening is also really important, being able to listen to what the other person is saying and be able to respond in a, in a charitable way and yet uh, in a clear uh, and truthful way. Absolutely. I think pro-life people often have a tendency to what we call straw man, pro-choice views. That means that you don't really listen to what the pro-choice person is saying, and then you start responding to a way weaker version of their argument, a straw man of their argument. And what we want to teach pro-life people to do is to steal man pro-choice arguments. We want you to listen so hard that you really understand what the pro-choice person is saying, and you respond to the absolute strongest version of their argument. You've really taken it in. You understand what is driving their view. Because if you can respond to that strongest version, that steel man of their argument, instead of a straw man of their argument, then they're going to be far more intrigued by your answer. (laughs) Because you've really paid attention to them and are addressing their root concerns. Emily, uh, tell us about uh, this new uh, program uh, that the Equal Rights Institute has rolled out. So in August, we launched the Equal Rights Institute Affiliate Group Program. It's basically a personalized mentorship program that's designed to help local pro-life groups, whether that be your high school pro-life group, your college pro-life group, your adult community group, a right-to-life group, a parish group, you name it, we're here to help. Basically, we know what has happened on all of these different campuses and communities who've discovered our materials. I myself am a success story of what Equal Rights Institute materials can do. And so we want to be there to serve the pro-life movement and help other passionate pro-lifers make as much of an impact as I was able to by getting those tools. So it's a completely free program where we provide you with apologetics training. We provide you with mentorship in how to grow your pro-life group, how to be more effective doing outreach into your community. And you meet one-on-one with a coach from Equal Rights Institute who will help you work through those materials and answer your questions and just be there for you as a support system. I know it can feel really alone sometimes, especially if you're a pro-life group on a college campus or in a community that's particularly hostile to the pro-life position. And so just having someone who's personally there for you and can help you to be more effective is a game changer for a lot of clubs that we work with. It sounds like you are arming the pro-life generation, uh, the youth of America. That is really the goal. And not just the youth, the adults too. I mean, out of the groups we have so far, we've been launched for two months. As I said, we have 18 clubs right now in 11 different states and actually two different countries. We have some international groups as well. And I'd say about Two-thirds of those are youth groups of some way. They're either high school or college-age students. But we also have a third of those groups who are adults who are wanting to better equip their Catholic parish or their particular Christian community with these tools. So we work with anyone who wants to work with us. But, yes, youth is a particular focus of my own because I am a young person myself, and I'm particularly passionate about making sure that young people are equipped with this material. What was the biggest argument uh, back when you first uh, discovered uh, the the great work of the Equal Rights Institute? What was the biggest argument um, that uh, really questioned um, the pro-life position? You know, we we hear about all the typical, you know, my body, my choice, and, you know, all all the different things that are said. What what, what argument did you see uh, as uh, the most challenging? challenging argument for pro-life people to really learn how to respond to is the most advanced version of what we call a bodily autonomy argument. 
So my body, my choice is a slogan that gets thrown around. And a lot of pro-life people hear that slogan and they think it means one thing that it actually doesn't mean. Pro-life people think that that means that pro-choice people don't really understand the biology situation happening during pregnancy. They think it means, oh, well, they think the baby is just part of the woman's body, but it has its own body, right? It has its own DNA, totally separate thing. So it's not your body, not your choice. That's a typical pro-life response to that. However, that's not 99% of the time what the pro-choice person actually means. Sometimes pro-choice people aren't great at articulating their view, and so it can be confusing. What pro-choice people usually mean is something a little more advanced called the right to refuse argument. It's the idea that, yes, the unborn is another person. Yes, it does have rights. It has its own body, all of those things. But we don't force people to, say, donate blood to another person. And if we don't even do that, then it seems ridiculous that we would force a woman to essentially donate her body to this other person for nine months. Now, that's a much more powerful pro-choice argument. It isn't based on, like, non-existent, not science. Like, it does recognize that the unborn is another person. But it says even though the unborn is another person, we still shouldn't force people to donate their bodies to other people. Now, there are great ways to respond to that right to refuse argument. Which is exactly what I was thinking. How would you respond, Emily? (laughs) So there's really four common pro-life objections to that. I'll just go through the strongest one, the one that I use the most often. And that's the analogy that I make called the boat story. Essentially, in the idea of blood donation or kidney donation, any kind of donating your body, there are hypothetically three options you have in that scenario. Like if if you, John, were dying of kidney failure and I was the only person that could save you, it would be really sad, like maybe I'd be a bad person if I chose not to donate my kidney to you, but I don't think that should be illegal. I don't think I should go to jail for that. I totally agree. We have rights to our body. We shouldn't have to donate blood or donate our kidneys. But I hypothetically have three options. I could either choose to help you, which would be really nice. Um, I could choose to not help you, and then you would die of kidney failure, which is sad, but not, not my fault. I shouldn't go to jail for that. Or third, hypothetically, I could kill you, John. Like, I could just decide that I don't like you, and I just want to I wanna be done with it, and I'm going to kill you. But I don't think all three options are available in every kind of situation. So here's where the boat comes in. Let's imagine that I have a boat. I grew up, I get really, really rich, and I get a yacht. And I take my yacht out in the middle of the lake on a Saturday afternoon. And I discover as I'm in the middle of the lake that there is this toddler that has wandered onto my boat. Okay, toddler was playing hide and go seek on the dock and wandered onto my boat, hid in the closet, fell asleep. Totally a plausible thing a toddler could do. I discover this as I'm in the middle of the lake. And I realize that I only have two options. I can either choose to help that toddler by allowing it to exist peacefully on my boat until I take the boat back to shore, at which point I don't think I should have any further legal obligation to it. Like, I can pass that obligation off to the police when I, as soon as I get back to shore. But I have, can either help that toddler or, hypothetically, I could throw that toddler overboard. We all know a toddler can't swim. In this case, there really is no not help option. Like, it doesn't exist. If it did, that would be like, me Star Trek beaming the toddler off of the boat and onto shore, and then I wouldn't have to deal with the toddler anymore, and the toddler would be over here, and we'd all be good. Toddler wouldn't die. But that's not an option. And that situation is far more analogous to pregnancy than blood donation or kidney donation. Because in pregnancy, there is no just 
not help option. Like, we can't just Star Trek beam the fetus out of the mother's womb into an artificial womb where the fetus doesn't die and she doesn't have to be pregnant anymore. If that existed, I would at least be willing to entertain that idea, but it does not exist. And so the only two options in pregnancy are help or kill. And I think killing is always wrong. That's why I'm so passionate about abortion, because I'm trying to end violence against innocent people. And so I do think we have rights to our bodies. I don't think we should be required to donate blood to other people. But that situation is not actually analogous to pregnancy. Well, I'm with you. Uh, We want to uh, we want to help the mothers and the babies. There's two bodies involved, not just one. And so uh, I I appreciate uh, your perspective uh, on on being able to answer uh, that uh, the very important question that is often brought up. Uh, Real quickly, can you you tell us uh, where can our listeners go to find out more about this new uh, program? Absolutely. Equal Rights Institute. Dot com is the place you're going to want to go. The name of my organization is Equal Rights Institute. So if you just check out EqualRightsInstitute.com, you'll get to our main webpage. You can find all the information about all the programs we offer and our apologetics tools. If you specifically want to look at this affiliate group program for your collegiate or high school or adult pro-life group, or maybe you want to start one and you want us to help you start us, you want us to help you start one, you can go to EqualRightsInstitute.com slash groups, and that'll take you straight to our affiliate group webpage. Sounds fantastic. We got to go. Emily, thank you so much for being with us. It is always an honor to be here. Thank you, John. Thank you. Emily Albrecht is a speaker, writer, and coach with the Equal Rights Institute. We got to take a short break. When we come back, Bishop Daniel Muggenberg will look ahead to this Sunday's gospel. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio Line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, Visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. From Maui to Maine, you're listening to Morning Air with John Morales. Coast to coast on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. And welcome back to Morning Air on another Friday dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. I'm John Morales. It's good to be with you. And now it's time to look ahead to this Sunday's Gospel. Always keep in mind that the Word of God in the Gospels, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, is powerful. When the Gospel, the Book Eternal, is proclaimed, Christ is passing by. Jesus is speaking to you. So listen carefully, folks, as Bishop Daniel Muggenberg, the newly installed Bishop of Reno, Nevada, shares his weekly reflection on this Sunday's Gospel with our very own Glenn Leverance. Our Gospel reading for this 31st Sunday in Ordinary Time comes from Mark chapter 12. One of the scribes came to Jesus and asked him, Which is the first of all the commandments? Jesus replied, The first is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you are right in saying, He is one, and there is no other than he. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, is worth more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered with understanding, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. 
and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Morning Air continues here on Relevant Radio. Time now for an in-depth look at that gospel we just heard for the 31st Sunday in Ordinary Time out of Mark chapter 12. To help us with that, uh, joining us once again, the Bishop of Reno, Nevada, Bishop Daniel Muggenberg is here. Bishop Muggenberg, always great to have you along. And great to be here, Glenn. Well, it's another quiz for our Lord this time and uh, another answer of the two greatest commandments, although this time we find out that the questioner isn't doing it to be mean or trying to trap our Lord. That's right. When the scribe asks Jesus about the first of the commandments, he's doing so because he has watched Jesus answer the Pharisees and the others who are challenging him, and the scribe has been listening to our Lord's responses. And so this scribe is approaching Jesus with sincerity and, and with a real desire to engage in conversation and dialogue. And that's what he's doing. So he's not trying to trip Jesus up or he's not trying to put him to the test. He's really wanting to engage in this conversation of faith with Jesus. And as we will see, um, Jesus answers so well and their conversation is so engaging that this scribe basically ends up becoming a disciple. And the scribe's willingness to engage our Lord was based on his observation of the Lord, kind of teaching us that we need to build up a trust with someone we might hope to convert. Well, you know what? People are always watching what we do, and we need to be very conscious of that. Um, and people are, are, are uh, you know, paying attention to how we respond um, to both positive situations we experience and to negative situations. And as disciples, we are always bearing witness to Jesus. And uh, we may not know who's paying attention to that witness, but someone is. And as a result of that, um, even without knowing it, uh, we may be leading others closer to Christ or wanting to know more about Christ just based on the way that we're living. And so that this scribe is really an example of someone who is watching and listening and finally then has the courage to approach Jesus himself. Um, and uh, so that's an instruction to us to never write people off, never just presume that someone is incapable of hearing the gospel or responding to the gospel. Um, God can do great things with the seeds that we plant, but it's up to us to plant those seeds. Well, Bishop Muggenberg, uh, it, it really shows that we ought not prejudge those who we uh, hope to change. Pharisees and scribes have been painted, uh, not inaccurately quite often, as the bad guys throughout all the course of the Gospels. And uh, here we have one that may be, may be switching sides. Well, the Lord actually appreciates his question, doesn't he? He does. You know, and Jesus ends up telling him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I would love to hear Jesus say those words to me as well. Um, and, and so the scribe is, is really uh, showing an openness, a receptiveness, a responsiveness to Jesus. And, and Jesus is praising that. Um, I think in many ways, Jesus is saying, you know, I, I, I really wish that um, my, all my disciples um, would be so engaging and so willing to um, embrace the insights of the heavenly kingdom and conform their lives to those insights as this scribe was. Well, the answer our Lord gives is to love God with all we've got and love our neighbor as well. Talk a little bit about those answers. We very much, you know, take the, that commandment for granted uh, because we've heard it so often. Um, and But what we fail to remember is that there's some very important teachings in those very simple words. You know, when Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We need to remember that um, when our Lord commands us to do that, he's, he's not just speaking about a passive, emotional kind of love, but he is speaking about a love that is putting our life in service of God. 
and it's conforming our life to the presence of God. And that means all of our thoughts, all of our affections, all of our daily works and decisions, you know, whether they happen uh, in the field or in the office, um, everything that we do uh, in terms of our time with our family, interactions with our friends, our entertainment, uh, the internet use, etc. Our whole life is conformed to that um, love of God and being in the presence of God at all times. If we do that, then we will not only love God, but we will love everyone whom God loves, because there is only one God. You know, the Lord is God, the Lord alone. And that means that God is God of all people throughout the world. And if we truly do love God, then we will love all people because God loves them. And that's what gives us the strength to love our neighbor, not just the neighbor whom we choose or the neighbor who responds to our love positively, but to love the neighbor whom God has put in our midst. And that takes a lot more than just human emotion and affection. That really takes a conviction. That, that takes a love of God that pours over into that love of neighbor. It really becomes a, a good examination of conscience, doesn't it? Yes, and, and it should be. You know, um, this, uh, this prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone, uh, was a prayer that was prayed daily by faithful Jews uh, called the Shema. So everyone would have known it, but they would have, um, you know, perhaps not, not applied it in the same way in which Jesus wants us to apply it as disciples, especially on the universality of who is our neighbor. Um, and so this commandment really, I think, takes us to be very challenged because oftentimes when we, when we ask ourselves, am I living this commandment out? We immediately look to the situations where we are successfully living it out, namely for one hour on Sunday morning and with a few of our family and friends. <laughs> what we don't pay attention to are all the times when we're failing to live this commandment out because we've limited it. Jesus wants us to accept this commandment as all-embracing for a disciple's life. And that means from, from Sunday through Saturday, all-embracing um, and in every aspect of our lives to love God and to love our neighbor. And it's the times that we fail in this love of God and neighbor that we need to pay attention to, recognize, and repent for. We're looking at Sunday's Gospel reading out of Mark chapter 12, looking about the greatest commandments here. This week at his weekly general audience, Pope Francis talked a little bit about this, uh, love being really greater than sacrifice, just going through religious motions or hanging on to them, but ultimately having that, that love for our Lord in our heart. Yeah, well, the scribe points this out very clearly when he says to Jesus, you know, love of neighbor is yourself and love of God with all your heart is worth more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. You know, oftentimes when it comes to our life of faith, we tend to categorize our faith. And it's very easy to, um, you know, think that we are a faithful person because of what we do for one hour on Sunday morning. And um, what the scribe is wanting us to understand is that our religious actions really um, don't mean anything to us or to God if we are categorizing those actions and not allowing those actions to direct, inform, and influence everything that we're doing, especially in our relationships with others. And so um, it's a really a caution for us not to deceive ourselves into thinking that faith can be reduced to just um, you know, that, that, that one-hour experience of uh, liturgical worship on Sunday. Um, that just doesn't work. 
and uh, and God is not contained uh, by our efforts to do so, but rather we deceive ourselves rather than anyone else. And so the scribe is really wanting to point out how necessary it is that we have that integration of faith that permeates um, all parts of our lives. And Bishop Muggenberg, uh, finally, the last line, kind of interesting there, uh, our Lord must have answered so well that it says no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> well, the, the one scribe who did ask him questions ended up practically becoming a disciple. <laughs> so so I think the others were kind of a little bit nervous that, you know, um, Jesus has answered so well, who else will they lose if, if they continue asking questions? Um, and it, that's a little bit tough for us to understand, uh, you know, that no one dared to ask him any more questions. But um, when we read this passage in the context of an honor-based society, um, and so an honor-based society always uh, was very conscious about situations of challenge and who wins in a situation of challenge. And of course, uh, the situation in which this question arises was one in which the Pharisees were challenging Jesus. And, um, and as a result of that, you know, one of their own scribes ends up becoming a disciple in that process. So that was a loss of honor um, for the Pharisees in this exchange. And so as a result of that, they did not dare to ask any more questions. Interesting stuff. Uh, I encourage you to spend some time with that gospel before Mass this weekend. Always appreciate your time, Bishop Mulgenberg. If you'd be so kind as to wrap us up with your blessing. The Lord be with you. And may the blessing of Almighty God, who always calls us to reflect the very love of God for us in our love for one another, inspire us to put our lives in complete service of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And thank you, Bishop Muggenberg. And now it's time for another episode of Glenn's Story Corner. Our story today is the Christian Pumpkin Poem. I'm a jack-o'-lantern, my light will shine so bright. For I'm a Christian pumpkin, and my symbols tell what's right. My nose is like the cross on which our Savior died. To set us free from sin, we need no longer hide. My mouth is like a fish, the whole wide world to show that Christians live in this house and love their Savior so. The story starts at Christmas. My eyes are like the star that shone on baby Jesus and wise men saw from afar. My color, it is orange, just like the big bright sun that rose on Easter day along with God's own sun. And so on Halloween, let's set our pumpkins out and tell the trick-or-treaters what God's love is all about. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So much, Glenn, coming up in the next hour on Morning Air. Catholic attorney Mary Helen Fiorito will join us to talk about the controversial Illinois parental notification law and former Planned Parenthood employee of the year turned pro-life advocate Myra Rodriguez will be with us to discuss the exploitation of Hispanic women by Planned Parenthood. Stay with us. There's much more to come next hour here on Morning Air.